Welcome to the now playing Halloween retrospective series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of every installment in the Halloween movie series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning. These conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Listener discretion is advised. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween Ends, starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Andy Matichek, James Jude Courtney, Will Patton, Rowan Campbell, Kyle Richards, directed by David Gordon Green. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Ed Stewart. And this is the Now Playing co-host who's better at podcasting than I am at yard work, Arnie. And that's really true. I edged like a shit. I mean, just awful. <laughs> that reminds me, I have to go outside and rake the leaves. Uh, welcome back to our Halloween retrospective series. This, by all counts, is the last one we're ever going to do, guys, because this is it. This is the last one. I mean, there's no way he's ever coming back because it's called Halloween Ends. There's no way we're ever coming back to discuss Michael Myers ever again. Are we discussing Michael Myers today? I didn't think he was in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly more than Season of a Witch, but I get your point. This is the 13th <laughs> Halloween movie, guys. Unlucky 13. Few franchises of any stripe, but particularly horror franchises, reach that magic number. Poor Friday the 13th still hasn't hit it. No, it's just stalled out at 12, and I think... The only ones that actually make it this far are the crazy ones like Full Moon Features, Puppet Master type stuff. Yes, I think you're right, Arnie. Normally, if they do reach these high numbers, it's because somebody has the license and they're just running it into the ground. But this is a curtain call. This is taking the original people, everyone that was involved in the 78 film, is getting a classy send-off. Is it a goodbye to them or is it a goodbye to Michael Myers and the entire franchise? I tend to be skeptical about the latter, but I do feel like for Jamie Lee Curtis, for John Carpenter, for David Gordon Green, bye-bye. Oh, I agree completely, but as long as there's an Akkad at the helm, there will be Halloween movies, and Akkad's name is plentiful in the opening credits, and yeah, I think, like a lot of franchises, this is a goodbye to this continuity, and we've had so many Michael Myers continuity, who knows, maybe the next movie will pick up on The Curse of the Thorn, 
but there will be... <laughs> Rob Zombie's looking for work. That monster <laughs> sequel ain't happening. Yeah, so there will be another Michael Myers movie eventually, but we're here to talk about the conclusion, the capper of that David Gordon Green trilogy started back in 2018. They, after the success of that one, said they had a trilogy in mind, and mm-hmm. we all had ideas what that third part would be when we reviewed Halloween Kills. But somebody knew what the conclusion was going to be before any of us. Our associate producer, Jason, is joining us once again, and you got to see this movie months ago. I have been uh, holding my breath for about three months now, Mm. guys, (laughs) so I am grateful to have you here joining me on my new podcast, Leave Corey Alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's not going to happen today, no. No, I want subscribers three. Uh, Yeah, that's a tough one. Jason, that had to be super hard for you because I know that you love talking Halloween, any Halloween. You could get excited about the 78 one that's so old by this point. To have all the secrets and you signed a, some kind of contract, right? You literally could not say that you saw the film. That had to be killer. Yeah, I'll just start at the beginning. So back in July, I got an email notification on one of my accounts that said, come see the uh, special preview screening of Halloween ends. And went down to the theater, had to sign an NDA. It was a preview screening, so I had to fill out the cards and everything when it was all over. But what was great about it, I went down there with a friend of mine who's also named Jason, and he's also a Now Playing fan, so I'm happy to give him a little shout-out here. We're sitting there waiting for the movie to start. I noticed there is a row with, obviously, like executives or people who are working maybe in marketing or something on the film. And then at the beginning of the movie, right before it starts... David Gordon Green, uh, the director, actually comes down to the front of the theater to give a little speech. And he comes down and introduces himself. I'm I'm David Gordon Green. I'm sitting there. I'm like, holy shit, that's David Gordon Green. You know, I start clapping. And he said, you know, the movie that you're going to see is um, not finished. He pointed out the music wasn't finished. That totally makes sense. He says the credit sequences aren't finished. The story's not finished. Sorry. (laughs) 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 He said, "I, I hopefully you'll like what you see. And off we went. And my audience really liked it. It was all Halloween fans in the audience because the invitation did say come to see Halloween ends, which is a little different. Sometimes you get those Mm -hmm. invites and they say come see a new action movie. They're not very specific. When I've done those, I never knew what I was about to see and they were never things I wanted to see. So that's kind of cool. You knew ahead of time, could plan for it. And then, yeah, three months beforehand, you had all the answers and the reactions. I'm curious, a room full of fans, how did they take it? Did you read the comic cards? Did you hear audible opinion? Audible opinion. Yeah, they did like it. They clapped at a lot of scenes. They clapped at the end. They really enjoyed the end. I know you guys will get into that, the procession. My friend and I, as we were walking out and wrote this down too, we agreed the same thing. We, people are going to hate Corey. That was like what I said when we walked out of it. I knew what was going on in the movie. I knew that they were trying something different, but I knew that it would be polarizing and it has turned out to be polarizing. Got to see uh, David Gordon Green. He was outside the theater, went over and talked to him for a couple of minutes. That was kind of cool. I asked him, you know, what was different, like how many times he'd shown the movie. He said that they'd done these previous screenings. This was the fourth one they'd done. He said the movie that I saw had the most of everything into it. Like they'd been taking stuff out, putting stuff back in. He mentioned one thing that they took out, must be a deleted scene, was as I guess a longer love scene between Allison and Corey. He said it just didn't work. 
he said that it was pretty much done. I pointed out to, I said, hey, if, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but the opening credit sequence, the font is the Halloween 3 season of the witch font. If you remember that from the opening of that movie. I don't. No, sorry. That's Some fans have put it together. I've seen it in the Facebook group. So I, I asked him, I'm like, Did, was that the Halloween 3 font I saw? And he said, yeah, that was a little Easter egg that I threw in there. So I said, that was pretty cool. Yeah, because this is a, the third Halloween film by some math. So Jason... The movie that you saw in July, I'm assuming you rewatched it either in the theater or on Peacock. Is it the exact same thing you saw or you did notice things have been moved or taken out or switched around or anything like that? It was the exact same thing I saw. There might have been a couple of lines in there like, I don't remember that, but it wasn't anything super consequential. So I'm pretty sure that the version that I saw was the uh, finished version. Again, music and credits were the only thing that were different. Of course. No, I, I, I meant more about the plot and the characters and the decisions. And you can also change character arcs and editing and focus and this or that. And that's what I was really curious about. Yeah, so the Michael Myers-Corey relationship was identical months ago as it was yesterday. Yes, it was. Yeah. And you said you anticipated a negative reaction to Corey, but what was your reaction? What did you write on the comment card? I wrote, they're not going to like Corey. I said that I wrote that. But there's nothing that they would be able to do, even if they read that card. You know, they're not going to go back in there and reshoot the whole picture. You know? When you say they, do you mean you? No, I meant fans. I was okay with it. Because, you know, maybe from some of the things that I said about Halloween Kills, I like it when they try something new with a Halloween movie. And so much of the complaints about this, I boy, if you go to the Facebook group for Now Playing, you see people <laughs> who say, this is not a true Halloween movie. Like, what does that even mean? I've heard it's not a slasher like Carpenter's movie. I'll get into what it means to not be a true Halloween movie. Don't worry. I think the argument that it's not a slasher is a little false. I mean, the original, the first Halloween doesn't even get going with the killing until like the last 25 minutes. But it's like it's The Last Jedi. And I'm okay with them trying something different. This won't be the last Halloween movie they ever do. Right. You know how the franchise kind of reboots itself every tw 10 years according to whatever the trend is. You know, the 80s trend was right. slashers, the you know, zombie stuff was torture porn. And this is obviously the legacy era. So whatever comes after will be something different. And so did you, I assume, go to the movie theater and watch it again? How many times? No, I did I did on Peacock. I had my tickets, you guys. And Thursday, it dropped on Peacock. And I got uh, one of the notifications. I think I put it in the text. It said uh, 1999 for a year. I was like, I'll do Peacock for that. <laughs> and so the and Halloween Ends was up on Thursday night, which... I thought it was a little odd. Uh, I know that they want to release it simultaneously, but they, you know, that made me cancel my movie tickets, mm. having it on Peacock on Thursday night. So I was going to go to the theater myself on that, and I looked Thursday morning, and it wasn't there. And I was like, oh, crap, I can't. I, all right, so I'm going to go to the theater tonight, and I'll figure it out. And then I saw your text that it's already up on Peacock, and that changed my entire weekend. I decided to stay at home and watch it on Peacock instead of going to the theater. The projections this weekend are still about $50 million, and the Thursday night previews were strong. So it can still make a lot of money at the box office. I think people don't know Peacock still. Either they know it or they just don't you know, believe, have any faith in the service to sign up for it. It's it's ongoing. So I'm the only one then that went to IMAX Thursday night, sat with a crowd, tried to gauge their fan reaction. Yeah, I knew I could sit at home and watch this, but yeah, part of the fun is, particularly with horror movies, is watching the collective have an experience. So I wanted to see, well, no, I wanted to see the movie, but I also wanted to see how it was going to be taken by people excited enough to pay IMAX prices Thursday night. And 
I definitely got a muted response. I did not have, unlike what Jason was describing, fans that were cheering an ending. I heard yawns and I heard grumbles. So did either of you guys rewatch Halloween Kills before this? Because I got to tell you, my opinion of Halloween Kills soured terribly in the past year. Evil Dies Tonight became a trigger term. I mean, you I would really <laughs> get angry. And the people who were ardent fans and just praised that movie me caused me to have a backlash. It wasn't just you, because you and I really haven't talked about it, Stuart, but people online keep talking about it, and I backlashed against that movie so hard that I went back and listened to that podcast. I'm like, I recommended that piece of shit? And so I went back and watched the movie, and oh yeah, okay, I recommend it. It was just an overreaction to ardent love that is unwarranted for that mediocre but acceptable slasher. I listened to our podcast, Arnie, and I had said on there, I'm going to watch it again before Halloween ends. I had the exact same issue. I was going to go sit down and watch it, and I said to myself, truthfully, man, I really don't want to watch this movie. I'm going to just watch Halloween ends. I listened to the podcast already. I already know what's going to happen again. And I decided not to because I did not enjoy the last one. I was very frustrated by it. And I really don't think I'm going to need to watch it after listening to our review. But I'm not regretting that decision at all after seeing Halloween Ends. So I know I made the (laughs) right choice. But man, it's amazing you said that, Arnie, because I had such a similar reaction to it in my head. Okay, as someone that is the only one that is, I guess, liked all of them, I went back and watched all of them. I watched Halloween 78, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills. I don't know if I got anything more out of watching them again, but it got me in the mood. I was excited to see where they were building and what was going to happen. I was one of the people that was really up on Halloween Kills. I didn't know other people were. I felt alone in that podcast. You guys were pretty down on it, but I felt like it was exciting to see them take creative risks. If you can say nothing else about that last movie, they clearly changed up the formula and took risks. Mm -hmm. I want to correct you. You say the only person who liked them all, I have recommended all of the ones in this continuity, 78, 2018, Kills. So I like them well enough. I just feel perhaps the two David Gordon Green ones are overrated. I haven't liked them as much, but I did like them in a perfect world where I had unlimited time. I would have done what you did and rewatched the saga to that point. That said, I know the first two very well. I actually feel like Halloween Kills lives rent-free in my head, (laughs) so rewatching it, I don't think I gained anything by it. I just knew it so well from last year. But it did get me in the mood, as did our podcast from last year. What will Halloween ends be? I knew there would be a time jump. What could they do to finish this off? I dare say I never expected what was coming. And I said in our Halloween Kills podcast there would be an unrated version. I did watch that unrated version. There was more of that eye gouging that I said looked like the MPAA made them cut it. You guys were like, it's so brutal as it is. There's no way they cut. Oh, they cut quite a bit. If you see the unrated version, much more gore. And Stuart, I want to... Also say, something that Arnie just said, I recommended the original Halloween and the 2018 one as well. Both of you guys were, I felt, against my big enthusiasm of the movie last time. 
Of last movie, yes, but I, I and I didn't recommend the last one. Yes, I felt both of you were like, no, 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 you're cra- you've gone to crazy town. Right, nobody likes this movie as much as you do, and I kind of felt alone in that as well. Okay, and so how was this thing going to end? The only thing I knew about this movie going into it was that John Carpenter was kind of <laughs> trying to prep the fans. He said in some kind of quote, as he was scoring the film several months ago, it's not going to be what you think. It's very muted. It's almost like theater. It feels like everything happens in the kitchen and don't expect a big spectacle. That was my takeaway, was that this was going to be another left turn, and instead of having the most explosive in-your-face Halloween movie, I don't know if you could have gone beyond Halloween Kills, this was going to be into something quieter. And so that had me curious. I think enough prelude has been happening. Arnie, how about a plot summary so we can get into Halloween ends? The year is 2022. Four years have passed since Michael Myers terrorized the town of Haddonfield for the second time. Michael was never captured, and the town has been on edge ever since. In this town lives Corey Cunningham, played by Rowan Campbell. Corey is something of a town pariah, as, three years earlier, Corey accidentally killed a boy who Corey was babysitting. Corey now works for his uncle at an automotive shop. Also living in Haddonfield is Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, and her granddaughter Allison, played by Andy Matichak. They have lived together after the death of Laurie's daughter, Allison's mother, and worked to fix their relationship in the intervening years. Allison pursues and starts to date Corey, at first to the approval of Laurie, but soon after, Laurie starts to disapprove, saying in Corey's eyes, she saw the eyes of Michael Myers. In fact, Corey has met Michael Myers. The mass murderer is living in the Haddonfield sewers. After some bullies throw Corey off an overpass, Michael drags Corey into the sewers, but doesn't kill the young man. Corey is tired of being picked on, so while he dates Allison, he also starts to murder all the townspeople that have wronged him over the course of the movie. For the first kill, he lures the victim to the sewers, and Corey lets Michael do the murdering. After that, Corey gets a taste for it himself. He even fights Michael and steals the old man's mask. On Halloween night, Corey dons that mask and goes on a killing spree throughout Haddonfield, putting down everyone who has wronged Corey or Allison, including Corey's own mother. Corey then goes after Lori, as the woman had tried to stand between Corey and Allison, but Lori is waiting for the boy. She shoots him twice in the shoulder. They hear Allison coming, so Corey stabs himself in the neck, framing Lori for his murder. Allison runs away, but before Lori has time to do much, Michael Myers comes and starts his attack. He reclaims his mask and does battle with Lori. Lori is eventually victorious in the battle, slitting Michael's throat and slashing his wrist. In an attempt to heal the community, Lori and the police drive around town with the dead Michael Myers on top of her car, and then put him in an industrial shredder, mushing the killer's body as credits roll. And as they start, we see the Universal logo, we see the Blumhouse logo. They've added Michael to their stable. If you notice, we actually go through the Blumhouse and standing outside the window, that's Myers, right next to the Purge people. And also, the whole time, though, they had uh, the DJ, the guy who would come back later in the movie, but I was surprised, and they play a really weird old kind of novelty Halloween song, Midnight Monster Hop, to start the movie, which was a, wow, it was a, let's talk about setting a tone, an unexpected tone, having a DJ talk up the top and then have that song, quite a different uh, way to way to go. 
Stuart is the monster hop joining your Halloween rotation along with Halloween. Stop, look, and listen. <laughs> it isn't quite as delightful, but it is cute. What I was more charmed with was the actual radio, I don't know what you want to call that, uh, promotional uh, noise, you know, the urge. They're trying to describe the idea that, A, people still listen to commercial radio <laughs> in 2022, and that, yes, you can get the urge when you pick up the frequency. I think that's uh, thematically a part of where they're going here. The movie opens up in 2019 on a Halloween night, which is very important for the rest of the movie, with a mother and father finding a last-minute babysitter for their child. The father calls their guy who does the lawn, Corey, a 21-year-old kid who lives in the town. Yeah, Corey Cunningham, the lifesaver. He's identified as the lifesaver when he shows up on the doorstep. I'm going to ask right up the top, because this movie is going to ask this question open-endedly. There is, I don't think, a definitive answer. Is Corey evil? In this moment, are we to think that he has malintent or could have malintent towards his charge, Jeremy? Because many people in this town will accuse him and never be swayed from the idea that he is innocent and out of fear, kicked him over the railing and to his death. I'm going to say this. I think that David Gordon Green is remaking a different John Carpenter film. He's not doing Halloween. He's doing Christine. There's going to be some shots later in the film straight out of Christine. Yeah. The character in that movie is Arnie Cunningham. Here we have Corey Cunningham. Mm. And I think the arcs of those two characters are similar in that both are kind of picked on. Both are losers. I believed, in answer to your direct question, that Corey has a lot of rage here. You know, you look at him, he's kind of an awkward kid. He's getting picked on by the father for not doing good yard work. And he's even being bested by this little bratty kid. He feels kind of impotent. And so I believe he's not evil, but I believe he's got anger and perhaps anger issues. And so that is something that can turn into evil. I actually thought, we talked about how the last movie kind of predicted the January 6th riots and some of that. I kind of thought this movie from this opening scene might be about an incel, but it goes a different way. To directly answer your question, no, I don't think he's evil. I do think he has anger issues. We Later on in the movie, we see his mother, and I don't think his mother turned that way on him and is writing him that way only because of what happens in this scene. I think that's a seemed to me like a lifelong kind of thing that he was dealing with at home. I don't think he came in here with any malintent. I think he came in here for a quick couple of bucks because he had no plans for Halloween. And he just, the temper got the best of him because he was scared, it being Halloween in the house and throughout the the whole time the kid's dicking with him. It's incredibly unfortunate what happened to him with his rage at that moment. But yeah, I think it was just a losing his temper, which has lifelong and death consequences. I do want to point out that they're watching The Thing, a nice little callback to the original 78 where they're watching The Thing from Another World, making me wonder if David Gordon Green will go on to remake The Thing. But <laughs> It's Exorcist next, but... Oh, well, there's still films after that. But 
when Corey gets locked in the attic, what I see is rage. When he's kicking down the door, that's not a normal thing to do, is kick down a door in a house where you're babysitting. You plead with the kid, you do a lot of things, you don't break a door jam, because you have to explain that shit. So that's where I get that he has rage that started to get unleashed, and yeah, this kid got in the way of the rage. As soon as they walked in that house, they gave this grand look up at that staircase, and I'm like, somebody's fallen down that staircase, somebody's fallen down that staircase. They did set it up nicely. I also like how the little boy, one of the taunts to Corey was, Michael Myers kills babysitters, not kids. And that made me laugh. Like, okay, because when the whole thing happened, when he was looking through the house for the kid, that was in the back of my head. Like, oh, that's kind of funny that they set that up also is that if Michael Myers does come out and kill Corey here, it's true to form with the babysitters and he's the babysitter. So I thought that was kind of fun. I think this is the best scene in the whole movie. I actually think they start off on an extremely good note here because yes, as audiences, you know, who are these people? We're expecting Michael to come into this house and cause this harm. It's the year later, the mom mentions that her son is, you know, wetting the bed and talking in his sleep because Michael Myers didn't get caught. After Halloween Kills, it looked like Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, was going to go find him that night, but nobody did. And he is out there. No, he's in, in a sewer pipe growing old. But to all of these people, he is a threat that could still burst through their door. I think we're all to think it's going to be Michael attacking them. I agree with you, Stuart. This is my favorite scene in the whole movie. And they really play with expectations a lot. And it took a while for the tension to build, but they found a way to do it. The knife was missing on the, from the counter. Then it was on the stairs. Then you were starting to think, what's going to happen? What's going? To, you, you were waiting and waiting, waiting for something to happen. And when the, finally the violence happens, and that was brutal, right? Like the way his neck just snapped and then the pool of blood. I mean, brutal. Just the shock of the body falling. I expected the kid to fall down the stairs. I didn't expect the kid to fall down the middle atrium. Splat. The parents get home and yeah, just Looney Tunes landing oof <laughs> now the parents were walking in and they overhear i'm going to kill you and then the kid falls and dies so goodness gracious i mean the parents you could try to explain that any way you want to what they saw and what they see and what they hear and it was remarkably chilling very effective chilling opening to this movie an unexpected way to open this movie yeah, and he's holding the knife when he's looking over the railing, too. They have a, a lot of reasons. The parents, I can understand why they think this man is a killer. It becomes the story for them that Corey hurt their child on purpose. And him getting off, we'll find out later, the judge will rule that it was an accident. But for them, that doesn't feel true. But for the audience, I think... Again, as we get deeper into this movie, it's supposed to be a lingering question. I agree with you, Arnie. For the most part, it's not even rage to me. It's fear. This man is so anxious about Michael coming in and killing him that when locked into a attic, he just sort of loses his cool and, you know, in panic. Not really in anger, but to me, in panic, he kicked the door open because he was like claustrophobic or something. He had to get out of that tight space. And in kicking open that door, we think, I mean, this is where it gets sticky. We know he kicked the door. We know it hit the kid. But how the kid went over the railing, was there a continuous fight afterwards? Did he say, how dare you lock me in this room? Stab, stab, stab. Mm, 
Maybe. I don't think so, just because no. I think they were playing it for a shock on us when the body fell. And the look on Corey's face, I'm going with this actor's performance, and I saw anger when he's beating down the door, and I saw shock and horror when that kid hit the ground. When he's standing there and holding the knife, I think he's as horrified as the parents. Yeah, and the knife is clean, Stuart. So there was no blood on that knife. Mm-hmm. Just tasty, tasty zucchini bread. So there's no... <laughs> Yeah, I believe that Corey looks pretty innocent. And maybe even that's part of the problem with the rest of this movie, is you're telling me that this is an innocent kid that gets bullied into being Michael Myers when Michael, by five years of age, was stabbing his sister. Yeah. He doesn't feel like the second coming of that evil, of that shape. He can't be. No, it is not Michael Myers' story. Yeah. In more ways than one. <laughs> right. But then we get our opening credits and pumpkins inside of pumpkins. Bursting out of other pumpkins. Actually, jack-o'-lanterns, right? They're very specific about this. They're jack-o'-lanterns because the end of it is a pumpkin and we go through the sinew of the pumpkin. Ah, true. Yeah. Evil within evil, where is the origin? You get to an uncut pumpkin and see what's inside all that stringy innards. Again, this is the question that I am hoping Halloween Ends answers. This is what I'm most excited about, is how they're going to explain evil. We've had so many conceptions of it in the past as some kind of psychotic rage or sexual lust, but what really is in the center here in this Michael Myers head is what I want to know. Yeah, because just to remind our listeners who may not have listened to the last podcast, Stuart, your hypothesis coming into this film was that Halloween Ends was going to explore why Michael Myers is Michael Myers. You thought maybe he was touched as a boy or something that would turn Michael Myers, perhaps possibly sympathetic, into the killer. And so that was in the back of my mind as well. And so I was constantly trying to equate Corey to Michael. But I think you and I, because of your theory, were both looking for that upon hitting play. Yeah, for sure. That was my expectation. So yeah, that's this pumpkin stuff is just confirming the idea that we're going to get to the center and see the real pumpkin by this end of this movie. And if you didn't see those other films, well, God help you, but <laughs> they have a helpful little montage here as we're reintroduced to a Laurie Strode I don't recognize, blonde and happy and making pumpkin pies in her nice kitchen without guns and locks on the door. And writing memoirs. I mean, the voiceover turns out to be the book that she's writing, which is therapeutic, obviously, is helping her get through a lot of her stuff to be a completely different character from the Sarah Connor-esque one we saw in Halloween, the reboot, and then the last time she was in the hospital the whole time. So maybe that was her transformative state where she started to transfer, although her daughter had died at the end, right? So it seems to me that Lori was still in that mode in the last movie, too. This is kind of a four years has been good to her to get her mind back to where she was when she was younger, I guess. We left her picking up a knife, saying into the phone, I'm coming for you, Michael. Right. And they talk about how she got clean. She got off alcohol. We knew in that first movie she was messed up in that way. In the second movie, they didn't have a whole lot of time to get into it because she was in a hospital the whole time. But here, she's clean, she's happy, but her voiceover talks about how the entire town 
it has a plague of grief and paranoia. Every death, they wonder if it's Michael. And I see that as a continuation of the evil dies tonight. The mob mentality has become mob fear and mob paranoia. But unlike the last movie where we got introduced to a whole bunch of townies, I can't say that I see it. I'm told it, but I don't see a town that's full of grief and paranoia. You do see it in montage. Again, we see that Lori is driving around, including the Corey incident. When the kid fell over the stair railing and died, she was one of the looky-loos outside trying to figure out what's happening. We see a woman that hung herself in her yard. We see a couple that got shut up in their car. Everyone is always asking, is it Michael? Is it Michael? Or is Michael us? I mean, I think that's the inference, is that whatever was evil was inside Michael has infected this entire town. It used to be Mayberry, and now it looks like Rob Zombie's hometown. You know, like it has that seediness. When we see Corey again, he's riding around on his bicycle, and everywhere he looks, you see depravity segregation. It's in the details of the art direction and the character casting. That mom from the beginning will end up being a, a real sot in a bar. You know, every character that looked like they had it together uh, will be looking pretty rough here. Except for Lori. Lori is blonde and trying to be chipper and trying to actually put out in the world good vibes. And her granddaughter now is a nurse at the hospital, so the only two people I see that are trying to move on with their lives are those two characters. Everyone else seems to be still in stasis and reacting to what happened all those years ago. But I just want to throw in that Allison, I think, also is trying to move on at some level, but not to the extent that Laurie has. Allison is the trickiest character to read in this entire movie. I actually feel like it was an opportunity for Andy Matichek to take over. Like, this could now be your franchise. This could now be your story, but either because she doesn't understand her character or isn't competent in conveying it. I do not understand what's going on with Allison. She's not grieving the boyfriend that cheated on her in high school. It's been four years, I mean. Yeah, she apparently has been dating. There was some cop that seems like a jerk that pulls her over and tries to hit on her and while he talks about her muffler. She's semi-functional, but what really is going on with her and the choices that she's going to make in the middle of this movie are a complete question mark to me. I don't blame the actress. I blame the script, but I mm. agree with you uh -huh. that she is a cipher. I don't understand why she does the things she does, but we'll get there. Mm -hmm. I agree completely. At the beginning of the movie here, though, I got the hope that she was, just like Lori, as I mentioned, trying to move on. But also the cop was like, it seemed like she was like 25 years older than she was. Like It was really weird that she would be dating that guy and then move on to Corey, who's more her age. To me, that was really strange that, and they didn't explore that at all. They didn't ex they didn't even try to explain why that relationship happened. I agree with both of you. I think of all the missed opportunities in this movie, this character is, is the biggest one for me. If I'm going to help this movie, I would say maybe she went with a cop because she felt scared after what everything that happened. And now that she realized he's a jerk, she's trying to heal. You know, she works at the hospital and she's putting up with a pretty rude doctor to try and get ahead and become charge nurse or something. Right. But yes. Meanwhile, Lori is taking some sympathy on Corey. Corey is... 
had to give up college. You know, it was mentioned in the opening scene, he was going to be an engineering student. He's obviously brainy. Well, all of that mechanical knowledge is, means that he now works on cars in a scrapyard with his uncle. And for reasons, the uncle has given him a new motorcycle, Kawasaki crotch rocket, but otherwise nothing is really going well for Corey. So this is the first time in the movie I have started questioning, this keeps coming up, why is he still here? Why is this character still living in Haddonfield? Why is Allison still living in Haddonfield? And thankfully, the movie catches up to me. But here is the first time. Because right after the scene with the motorcycle, he gets his first interaction with those high school seniors at the quick stop who want him to buy beer. And they know who he is. And they pick on him because they know who he is. And he is full of fear. He can't do anything to fight back against these kids. He feels like he can't fight back, say anything back. He has no light to stand on. And that's the first time it occurred to me, what are you doing here, man? Just move away where no one knows who you are. Just try to give yourself a fresh start. I don't understand why that wasn't even brought up at all in this movie. Well, why any of these characters who are so affected by what happened four years ago, they're still here. No, that's, I think, the point is exactly. They're stuck in a place they should move on from. And because he can't, yeah, the healthy choice would have been to go to college, would have been to create a new life and a new identity for himself, but he seems stuck. And one little character choice I do notice, we saw it in the first scene. He goes to the fridge and sees beer, and for a second goes, hmm, maybe I should have beer, but he always makes the choice for chocolate milk. And he's at this (laughs) gas station picking up, it's called Chocolate Soldier, which made me laugh. It's like a macho milk, but it is still chocolate milk. And these kids want him to buy alcohol, and he just hasn't grown up yet. He is still infantilized, I guess is the way that I think of it. He just is still a child. And because he has a heckling mother, we're to think that he just hasn't created his own identity. Heckling mother? That's not how I would describe her, but okay. I think he has grown up to the point where he will at least not buy the liquor for them. I would have thought more he would be a child if he was trying to win these kids' affections by being the buyer of the beer, which is how I thought the scene Mm. would go, is that he's so desperate for a friend, he'd try to buy the beer. But no, he stands up for himself, and again, we see a little bit of that rage. When they start to pick on him, he squishes his Yoohoo bottle, or whatever that is. Chocolate soldier. Chocolate soldier. And cuts his own hand. Yeah, getting stigmata, I think the first of some religious imagery as well. The idea that, again, in this movie's conception, I rarely see the reading that he was born bad. I continuously see the reading that he was made into a killer through victimization and bullying. I agree with you. I think this was the whole point of this Corey thing being the focus of this movie, is that we're seeing how someone turns into a killer like that. Except... Michael was five and not bullied. We don't know if he was bullied or not, but yes. Not like this anyway. Yes. It would be hard to bully a five-year-old in that way. He may have been abused. And again, that was my suspicion watching Halloween Kills and remains my reading, but we don't know. We don't know. Right. But here we're watching the origin of how someone turns from one thing to the next. And they take a lot of time in this movie to demonstrate this. The movie is about this. Yeah, and I love the fact that Lori is there and gives him the switchblade. She's like, those guys are jerks. Go ahead and slash their tires. All right, so where are you guys at with this movie at this point? Because we go 
quite a while in this movie before we even get to Michael Myers. Are you guys wondering why we're focusing so much on Corey? I hate to say it, but thanks to the internet, I was sort of spoiled that Corey was going to be a killer in this movie. I didn't know the details about it, but thanks to certain people posting online oblique things that were way too obvious or just posting that... Michael Myers had an apprentice killer in this one, and then seeing stuff about Corey, the killer babysitter, I knew coming in that this was going to be a Corey story. But where were you two at as far as, is this a Halloween movie? Somewhere in here, before they go to the hospital to get his hand fixed, right? Don't they show the pipe where the wino is under the bridge? Mm -hmm. And they so they kind of intimate that Michael Myers is lurking, right? Yeah. But we don't really see him until like 40 minutes into the movie. There may be a POV shot of him from inside the pipe. Yes, yeah, something like that. But it's nothing overt, right? So for me, I was really taking the ride of this movie. The opening scene with that kid falling down and that the way his neck was broken, I'm not piecing together... I'm not at this point in the movie. I'm okay with following Corey. I want to see where this is going. I'm more shocked with where the 180 Lori has than where the heck is Michael Myers at this point. So the only thing I'm critiquing about this being a Halloween movie is how is Lori Strode this character now after what we just saw for two movies? More than why am I spending so much time with Corey? Because right now I'm enjoying this Corey story and how it's progressing. Yeah, the short answer is, I did not know Corey was going to be the killer, but I'm loving the slow build. I love the idea that this is just a piece about the aftermath of tragedy, and that Haddonfield has fallen on hard times, and we can see that attempt to pick oneself up, both in Lori and in this kid. She sees someone that needs help, and, you know, she sees her granddaughter needing a date, so Lori is going to take him to the ER specifically so that she can get the glass out of his hand. I like all of these dynamics. I like the dramatic take on this. It feels to me, my thought is, this feels more like Haddonfield, the show, than it feels like the next <laughs> Halloween slasher movie. But I actually, again, I was prepped for it by the comments that John Carpenter had made in the buildup. It was one of the few things I knew was that this was going to have a different dramatic tone. I really was into it. Yeah, just to echo, I mean, I was a little bit prepared, but I think that may have helped my viewing because I'm into this character of Corey. Mm -hmm. And if I'm being completely honest, I can relate to this character of Corey. No, I've never killed anybody yet, but <laughs> I, I have felt somewhat detached and I didn't necessarily feel like I could be anonymous in a town where I lived. And so I can kind of go with his story and seeing him become a killer Again, though, I thought that this might be a commentary on incels. I did not expect, all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, Allison to decide to take a liking to this guy, and this almost become a pseudo-Mickey Mallory kind of situation. Keep in mind, I think this was in the design. What was she for Halloween in the first movie? Bonnie Parker to her boyfriend's Clyde Barrow. They were Bonnie and Clyde. No, she was Clyde. Yeah, they switched it. Yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, gender flips, because it's, you know, today, the kids. Right. But my point is, they saw that as attractive as a Halloween costume, something to throw on, but actually becoming that in reality is fascinating. And if this movie were better, 
in its dramatic telling of the psychological makeup of these characters. That would be really something to watch. Yes, if they had Allison and Corey be killers together, that would have been a much more bold choice to make. But they didn't go there. And I felt at this point, and they call it out a few scenes from now, that she's picking up Corey as a project. And thankfully, they did call it out. And he yells at her, I'm not your project, thank goodness. Because clearly, to me, with Lori, knowing who he is, because they also make it very clear that everyone in this town knows who this boy is, right? And Allison has to know who he is. So she's intrigued by him because he has death in his past, like she does with her parents, that they're not helping each other. I got the, this is a project. If I can fix him, maybe I can fix myself kind of thing. Right. She never knows. And he. it's really late before he becomes really a homicidal killer. Yeah, you know, right. kids fall all over banisters and a homeless guy is going to get stabbed in a fight. But the true act of choosing to go out and hunt people down comes really late. And I don't think she would ever condone it. It would be more interesting if she found a way psychologically to get there and want it or at least accept it in him. But yes, right now in the beginning, it is a lot of flirting of like, let me take the glass out of your hand and ask you out on a date. It was so strange to me, the way she's just instantly attracted to this guy and instantly asking him out like that. Again, I blame the script. The actress, I think, is doing what she can with what she's told to do. But why him out of everybody? It seems counterintuitive. I get the idea that, again, if she's been through trauma and he's been through trauma, you understand something about me that when I date a cop, they don't understand. They're trying to protect me. They don't understand my wound. What Artie, I think, is complaining about is how it happened so quickly. Like, she didn't want to go to this party, then she asks him out. I think it's a fault in the script as well that it happened so quickly. Lori brings him there, and she goes along with it so quick. What the heck? Just, like, maybe have a little bit more of a courtship. The movie does take its time. Mm -hmm. The beautiful thing about this movie, it does take its time. We have a couple of scenes we're going to talk about in a few minutes that you could easily cut out of this movie if they were, but I'm glad they didn't. And here, it just seems to go, like, just like Lori being a different character, it kind of flips so quick that she's goes after this guy with such passion and fury to get this guy to go out with her. Yeah. And, and so I'm helping the movie a bit when I was thinking to myself, oh, he's a project. But then he, when he calls it out later, I'm thinking, oh, good. So they're aware that this is kind of like so quick. Yeah. And by fixing him, she can finally heal something about herself because she kind of was part of that whole rage mob. She went in with the boyfriend into that house. She almost got killed herself. So I think there's some survivor's guilt. There's some recognition that she went mad four years ago and wants to heal from it. I get that part. It's the later stuff that's confusing. But as, yes, as she is a watching Corey struggle, because they do go to this, you know, I guess we could call it a Halloween party. It's a bar uh, <laughs> run by Lindsay, who, you know, is okay with the idea that this kid with this bad reputation is running around with Allison, but the mom of Jeremy is there and she's not okay. She makes the pointed remark that my son is dead and you're running around and having fun. How is that justice? And it's also the day, right? Well, it's actually Halloween. It's a couple of days before, but it's coming up on the anniversary of the child's death. I got that she was drunk and she was angry with him having fun. And here is the scene. We talked earlier about how my favorite scene in the movie was the beginning of the movie. This scene and the next one with Laurie at the supermarket are my two other favorite scenes in this movie. That he is finally able to let his proverbial hair down. He's all over the floor dancing. Take his mask off. 
Literally. Literally take the mask off the whole thing, and then reality smacks him in the face right there. It was a great scene. But I think he's actually wearing his mask at this point, because what I like about this party scene is there are times when people interfere like when they're in that little photo booth and doing those photo strips you know that couples do yeah somebody pokes their head in and kind of photo bombs them in the next shot Corey looks rageful like how dare you interrupt my private time that's going on here with allison there's just I think under the surface, this hurt and rage and that he's constantly prepared for disappointment and that something is going to come along and ruin this night. And so I feel like the mask is a mask of happiness and he does let himself go a little bit, I think, when he pulls the sweater off, but it's still right underneath that surface. I want to really give a shout out to the actor playing Corey for pulling all this off. I mean, mm. I looked him up. He hasn't done a ton of stuff, but he is completely selling me on this character and a range of emotion in just a eye look or just a facial expression. I completely agree. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, he's got the right look, too. Like, he can look awkward and ugly in certain scenes and kind of hunky in others. You, you get the idea that there could be a Pygmalion transformation, that if Haddonfield would leave him alone... He could probably stop being this scary figure, the scarecrow, and be normal. Yeah. It would actually take if we didn't have to constantly run into people that remind me what they think I am and pushing me into that box of being it. Right. And at the same time that that's happening with him, it's also happening with Lori. As you mentioned, Brock, mm -hmm. she goes to the supermarket, thinks she's just flirting with Frank. And then has to get confronted in the parking lot. Who gives her this basically the same speech. How dare you have fun here at the supermarket, my sister, because you poked the bear of Michael Myers. My sister lives like this now in this wheelchair, and you are sitting there, have the audacity to have fun in your life. And they have this parallel scenes and parallel moments of reality checks. And I love they kept these in this in this movie because no matter how happy Lori tries to be and works so hard to be, it's constantly a process. It's you just can't turn it on and off like a light switch. Psychological damage, you cannot, no matter how much work you do to help yourself get to a different place, it's a constant struggle, much like any other disease. And for Lori to have gone so, so, so much trauma and allow herself to have a nice moment was incredibly hard for her, I'm sure. And then to have someone smack her back down to reality was just a chilling moment. I liked how Jamie Lee Curtis also played that very much, that she was even almost timid to flirt with Frank, but enjoyed it so much. The whole scene played out so beautifully, and Jamie Lee Curtis got to pl play a beautiful arc throughout both those parts of those scenes. What a moment of character for Laurie in this movie. And did you notice they were playing Don't Fear the Reaper yes. as Muzak yes. in the supermarket? You know, that was in the original movie. You can forget that. But when she was driving around with her friends in 1978 movie, that was sort of the ominous, oh, Michael is bad theme. Yeah, it's this idea of dread. You know, anxiety is 
the fear that something is just about to happen to you. And no, yeah, if she ever allows herself a moment to have fun and to flirt with a guy, God damn it, here comes Sandra. Do you guys remember Sandra too? I am shocked she lived with that fluorescent tube in her throat. Oh yeah, she was the one with the drone. I mean, it helped that I just rewatched it. I don't think I would have remembered her specifically. She's in the first movie too. She shows the British people around the cemetery. Oh, that's right. That's oh, right. Wow. Good for you. So a lot of these characters, again, I love how thought out it feels in the idea that these characters float in and out of all three movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's bravo for them. Also, the characters, I'm sure the actors are happy to come back, right? But the fact that they get a chance to have continuity that is in the background is a nice little touch. Obviously not completely planned for for Sandra's character, but it was nice that they threw it in there to add some weight to what they're, the theme is that they're going for. And I think Lori is where you're at, Brock, with the idea of like, why don't these people just leave? Why do they stay here and allow themselves to be abused when they could go somewhere else and, and live anonymously? I think that's what the emotion of like guilt can kind of trap you in. Like it's capturing that feeling of like, I'm not allowing myself to move on yet. And so she's thinking about it. She's talking with Frank. He's talking about Japan. And, mm -hmm. you know, they talk about going to see cherry blossoms. There is this idea that she doesn't have to be here in central Illinois. But I appreciate the fact that she just isn't ready to move on. And there's part of her that wants to change the culture. She doesn't want people to, to remain in this unhappy, backbiting, infected kind of evil way. Right. But also she has Allison, right? So Allison's here. She's going to stay here. That is clear to me why she is still here, right? Because mm -hmm. Allison is here. Her family is here. Why Allison is still here, why Corey is still here, after we see his mother and, and his uncle, why are you still here? Is still pervasive. But yes, theoretically speaking, Lori could have moved away as well this time. But I don't ask that question of her. I ask that question of Allison and Corey. Mm -hmm. But this is the part of the movie where it switches gears and they make the big leap of saying that Corey has the potential, if only that were true, of being a new Michael Myers. Yes, it's 40 minutes into the movie, and I was watching this with Marjorie, who knew absolutely nothing, and she's getting antsy. She's like, where is Michael Myers? How is this a Halloween movie? What am I watching? And so she starts to get a little bit excited when we finally get there. What happens is those kids from the gas station, I didn't expect them to become such important characters, but they catch up to Corey as he's leaving that Halloween party, and it gets pretty brutal. They're picking on him, he's pulling a knife, they smack it out of his hand and throw him over a bridge into the dirt under below. But he gets one in, and I think it's important that, like, they probably could have just been happy stomping on his glasses. But then he turns and tells Terry, oh, your dad doesn't like you. He hates you. Uh, he recognized what it is that when parents don't like children, he lives with that. And there was this little moment earlier in the junkyard where we saw the dad drag Terry's car in and say, my son is stupid enough to drive around on a slashed tire. I think it was that comment that made Terry get enraged and throw him over the overpass. Corey did survive the fall. He landed on his back, which was surprising he survived it, but he got dragged into the pipe by Michael. And that homeless guy just watching, I kind of enjoyed the homeless guy's reactions. This scene with Michael, Michael holds him up by the throat, and then they have the most baffling scene of the movie for me <laughs> at this point. We see either 
Corey's life is flashing in his eye, not before his eye, but is it before his eye so Michael sees the history, or is it Corey's life is so flashing before himself? Whatever this is, it's symbolizing that Michael sees a kinship with this kid. That is what the point of the scene, I think, is. I took it as that Michael has now a psychic connection and knows Corey's pain. Yeah, I mean, you could uh, certainly, in its most base reading, the shape jumps from one body into another. Like, that could be the interpretation. Whatever was inside Michael and is still inside this aging, dying old man Michael that lives in a sewer pipe can now find new life because this kid's has the makings of another impossible to stop serial killer are you getting supernatural transference here because i'm not getting a supernatural soul of michael myers being rushed into Corey. what i'm seeing is Corey's life flashing before his eyes michael somehow sees in his eye some sort of ability or kinship more than i'm transferring my evil to him I think it can be read either way. I agree with you. I think the way that it's shot, it actually looks like they're looking into a mirror. With that one is looking to the other. Because it's weird. He's reaching through a hole in the bricks. And, they, and he's trying to choke him that way. And they're face to face. And he's choking him. And it looks like, or is supposed to look like, two sides of the same coin. This was the first time. I can remember feeling it in the theater of going, oh, no. Really? <laughs> Oh, no. Like, it was a, oh, please don't go there. Don't make this quite so literal. I don't have a problem with watching. In fact, I love the idea that Michael's evil can infect people and make them do things that they normally wouldn't. Again, that works so well in Halloween Kills for me. But to actually have him have a disciple that's going to, like, learn from him, well, it requires two things. One, it requires Michael to talk. It requires Michael to be like, I want you to be, you know, I am your father. Like, we need him to now (laughs) literally work with this guy to train him to be that way. Otherwise, it becomes a dumb body hopping thing. Right. So my other point is that Michael dragged Corey into the pipe, but didn't kill him immediately. He waited till Corey came to and then started to kill him, right? So the only reason I think that Michael seems some sort of Maybe he was just lonely, you know, living in a pipe with rats. But I think that maybe he already felt something about this kid or saw more than he is letting on by watching or something that maybe he understood this kid more. Something like that, you know, because if he's going to kill the guy with choking him out, why don't just kill him when he dragged him in the first place? And that's the other piece. Not only do you have to show this character is actively getting involved in this kid's life, but you actually have to answer why he is a killer and how he self-identifies and what it is he actually wants. He can no longer be the white mask, blank slate. We have to understand Michael in order for this to work. And this is why this movie does not work in the ways that it's trying to for the rest of its run. Yeah, my biggest question where I don't understand, Michael, is why has the shape spent four years in a sewer? He never seemed interested in just chilling and retiring. You know, the last time we saw him, he did one of the largest mass murders that we've ever seen in any horror movie, really, Mm -hmm. as far as slashers go, at least. Then he just is like, yeah, I'm going to chill out and maybe feed on some rats and live with the homeless. It made no sense to me why he was down there in the first place, let alone this huge leap that he's going to let Corey live. 
I also had an issue with, and later on the movie kind of explains it a little bit here and there. Maybe he's just old and hurt. Like, he only uses his right hand. His left hand is, like, damaged or... Uh, he's missing some fingers from, I think, the 2018 film. Right. So, like, he only has... He's he's clearly still hurting, and he can't go to a hospital, obviously. So he's self-healing in this sewer for four years. Maybe part of it is that he physically isn't up for it. Until later on in the movie, I'm jumping ahead a tiny bit, when he starts killing, it's like his body regenerates. Like, the killing gives him more vitality and ability to move and things. I think... That that is what this movie is trying to say. There is no supernatural shape. There is no evil. This is an old man who, for whatever reason, killed a bunch of people and now feels pretty shitty and can't really get up to do it anymore. And that's, well, for one thing, that's going to piss a lot of people off. Just as people that are fans of slasher icons, nobody wants to see their heroes age out and become irrelevant. That's a real big gamble. And then two, the, the strange plausibility. Like, okay, so now he, he's a real person and this really could have happened to a real man? Mm, not buying it. He took two in the back last time. He was being yeah. shot and got back up like nothing. I mean, and again, that happened in the 1978 original. He was shot and got up like nothing. You can't now have it both ways. Mm -hmm. But I understand right. they have a problem. We don't want nursing home fights we don't want this old man to be fighting an old woman for 90 minutes on screen. We have to expand this. We have to have it play then more to the AARP set. And that's what we'd have if we remade Halloween 1978 with these people in the state where they are now. If Michael was against stalking Lori or whatever you have. So I see that they're in a bind about where they could take this story, but man, it feels to me like Danny McBride or one of the four writers had a spec script sitting around for Corey the Killer, <laughs> and it's like, maybe I could just twist this a little bit and put Michael Myers in here and throw an ending on, and now it's Halloween. Now, I want to point something out that you're, you're bringing up. Yes. So Danny McBride, the comedian, and David Gordon Green have their names on all three scripts. They worked on all of it, but they collaborated with different people each time. That first movie had a third collaborator that did not return. The last movie had someone totally different from the TV show Rectify. And now they have two other guys, one that doesn't have any writing credits, one that helped write Manglehorn, an Al Pacino movie that David Gordon Green made, to finish this out. To which I say it feels that way. It feels like the people that started conceiving this trilogy are not necessarily the people that are helping it bring it to a close. It doesn't feel like what they were setting up in that first movie is where they're at now. And that different writers, yeah, are trying to push the idea that suddenly somehow this can all work as the night Corey came home. I read up a little bit on this. They were talking sequel, but said, let's see how the first one performs. The first one performed well. They said, okay, we'll do a sequel. 
And when they all the talks of the trilogy was really, we have two films here, not three. And they decided, oh, we have more material than we thought we had. We'll make it into a trilogy, which is always a bad sign. <laughs> so I don't know how many times I can bring this up. On I think I brought it up in the last Halloween podcast about how Attack of the Clones does not feel like a full movie. That they stretch it out into a trilogy when it really was a duology. So this story here kind of feels like the last movie we talked about the mob mentality and how this town all banded together like, you know, uh, evil dies tonight. So this movie kind of, to me, is channeling that kind of thought. And instead of telling it as the whole town, they're doing it into one person. Is that how rage can affect not just a whole town. It's easier to tell it from one person's perspective instead of a whole town's perspective. So they went four years out. It's been distancing. They decided to go a different direction with the town and maybe tell the story they were thinking about telling and channeling it into one person. Because you cannot... Make me believe that when they came up with a trilogy, quote-unquote, or even a duology, that Corey was in the mix. No. It seems to me that he was a solution to tie everything together the best they could to get to the ending of this movie. I'm sure that he had to present his ideas for the trilogy going forward. He knew that it would involve, I think he probably knew it would involve a new generation being turned on to the evil. But the actual uh, mechanics of what that looks like are being solved by these new writers right. and not being solved well. I do feel like this next hour is really hard to swallow, that suddenly he is an apprentice. Yeah, like Michael Myers is Yoda, and he's going to keep running back to the pipe and teach me how to be a serial killer. That's a bad way to go. That it starts so quickly that he leaves the pipe And that homeless guy is there. The homeless guy has Corey's knife because Corey had had it knocked out of his hand. And that the first stab happens, I took as an accident. The next couple stabs, oh, Corey met Michael. Corey is now a killer. He's killing this homeless guy. And then, stupidly, he just throws the knife. I mean, I'm positive Corey's fingerprints are on... (laughs) the police record from the whole incident four years earlier or three years earlier. So they're going to find that knife and know he was there. I mean, yeah, but that's in a world where CSI investigates every death. And this is Haddonfield, small town America, where if a homeless person was stabbed, we don't care. Let's eat a donut. Under a bridge, not in the supermarket parking lot. Like he's out of the way. People aren't going to see this body for days if at all for a long time he actually confesses this to allison like he 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 goes to her and says i killed someone yeah but he he, she's thinking it plays that yeah i know you were the babysitter who killed the kid not a new person he was confessing to her i killed a new person and she's taking it as yeah i know that the kid that was a little fun and never clarifies it yeah he never tells her he killed a homeless man she never knows that Right. Right. And meanwhile, grandma is like upstairs, you know, clanking away on her laptop, looks out the window and is like, them are Michael's eyes. And suddenly she has a whole different idea about setting up her granddaughter with this kid. This is like some kind of J-Lo comedy that shouldn't be happening. You know, like this J-Lo is, comedy? You know, like rom-com kind of like the grandma doesn't approve of the match kind of shenanigans 
oof, I can't believe that this is what they've given Jamie Lee Curtis to do. My issue isn't that she doesn't approve of Corey. My issue is that she turns on Corey. She got this guy into her life. And all of a sudden, she turns on it because she sees Michael Myers outside her window kind of perspective. And she gets spooked by this guy because of her own past that she's been trying to work through. And now she's doubting what she did. Why have her be the person to introduce Allison to Corey to have her go against it? It's called irony. Well, that's not good writing. I think it's a bad idea. Be careful what you wish for. You might get it. I mean, that is a common ironic twist, but it just feels goofy. It feels goofy to me that this woman's now running around in the bushes, spying on them as they make out, running to the mom and being like, hmm, I feel like that look in his eye. Are we supposed to think she's crazy? This is my question is, we don't because we know she's right. But would it play better if we saw this as Lori is still not mentally well? I don't think it gels with the beginning of the movie. So that's my issue with this. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that it plays as crazy at all, unfortunately. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, she's right. We know that she's right because we're cutting away and watching what Corey's doing. Mm -hmm. And he is becoming a new Michael. So it's not just that, like, I look in his eyes and, you know, I can see it. If we only saw this movie from her perspective, she might look paranoid. But because we're watching Corey descend into, literally, go to Michael and be like, teach me, then she looks savvy. He's not turning into a new Michael. Michael goes in the first movie and in this movie, goes around and kills people who are in front of him. Corey's going out and killing people who wronged him. So I'm not just saying it's it's okay to do that. <laughs> I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying is Michael Myers does not, except for Laurie Strode, who was the one that got away in the la- in the first movie of this trilogy, he is not specifically going after people. He is killing people who are in his way to where he's going. Not always the case. Let's look at the kill list. Let's go through these kills. The first one is Doug. That asshole cop sees them on a date, approaches them, you know, like disrespects, recognizes them, and then really disrespects them. It looks like it could turn into a fight right there in the diner. And then he follows him back to the pipe, and it becomes a two-against-one wrestling match. Corey leads him there. Corey baits him and gets him to follow him. It's intentional. Yeah, Pete follows Corey looking for trouble, expecting to get some revenge on Corey for Corey showing him up at that restaurant. I'm actually all for this. I'm all for Corey leading him into this Michael Myers trap because Corey isn't necessarily a killer here. He's just, you know, if this guy wants to come after me, he can come after me, but I'm going to take him to Michael. (laughs) And I kind of find that funny. It's goofy. I don't like it. I just, whole kill is stupid to me. The fact that the cop would go into the pipe, all of it. Just the whole scene is just bad. It's a bad kill scene. It's It's in the dark. You can't even see what's going on. If you're a gore hound, it's not satisfying. I just, bad, bad, bad. Like, just not good. But whatever. We've had an unsatisfying homeless man got stabbed in a fight scene. Now we've had this lure you to your death tag team. And then... I'm going to go after Debbie and Dr. Mathis at their house because Debbie got the job that Allison was supposed to? Maybe? Also, he witnessed Allison being hit on by the doctor, and he tells her earlier in the movie, you shouldn't let him talk to you that way. 
hit on. I thought he was rude. Yeah, he was rude to her. He was, but I just had this feeling the whole time that he was stooping the redhead. Yes, so hitting on is probably the wrong terminology. Uh, harassment is probably mm-hmm. more accurate to say. Excuse me, but yes, I also got the same idea. He's stooping the redhead, and we're confirmed on that. We get that in this scene at the house. I laugh so hard because. She's still calling him Dr. Mathis, and (laughs) they're fucking. It's like, uh, at some point, don't you switch to the first name? Maybe not. Maybe not in this relationship. Maybe that's part of the games they're about to play. She's putting on something. I think it's just a bathrobe, but maybe they were like really sexy scrubs. I couldn't tell. But yeah, she's getting in the shower when the music cuts out, and she finds that the scarecrow killer is putting a plastic bag over Dr. Mathis' head and stabbing him. Ha ha ha, I can run behind the sliding glass doors, lock you out. But Michael is waiting inside, and Michael is going to stab her against an oil painting. So it's a tag team now. They kill together. It's kind of a fun kill. You don't expect Michael. I expected Corey to bust through the glass. I mean, I'm wondering how Michael is Corey going to go? Michael Myers would not be stopped by a glass door, and so would Corey be stopped by a glass door, that Michael himself jumps out of nowhere, understand this is goofy to think that Michael, like, Corey was like, Michael, hey, I got a couple people I want to off, come with me. Right, we need to see that, that's what I mean about Michael needing to talk. I don't want to see that, I think it destroys the illusion, but this is kind of where you backed yourself into the corner. We need to understand that these two are communicating. So how is that done? Is it telepathically? Are they like drawing pictures in blood? Like how did they plan this attack on this house of I'll be outside and you be inside? Right. Or maybe they just like they went together and then they just split up. Winged it? Well, the plastic bag, why would he even think about doing that first instead of just stabbing him in the neck? So there was some premeditation there a little bit where Michael you know, can work with what he has, but Corey's new at this. The master and apprentice bit here, I was able to go along with a little bit more than you two seem to be able to go along with. I didn't really mind it as much. I kind of like that Corey just wasn't on his own and went back and reported to Michael. Hey, this is how I did it. I kind of like that they were there together and had the master and apprentice vibe. And I also like that Michael got this kill where he stabbed her against the wall, which we've seen before. I kind of liked that they brought that back, that, you know, the knife just made her stay there. Yeah, that was fun. We were talking a lot about how clever the kills were in the 2018 version of Halloween, right? And last time we were talking brutality and things like that. Here, these kills seem, dare I say, normal. Terrible to say, but it's kind of true that they kind of seem like run-of-the-mill or realistic kind of kills versus a slasher movie kind of kill. My word is obligatory. It feels like, oh, I guess we have to do this, right? Like, they're not satisfying for the gore hounds and for people that want suspense. This movie is hella not scary. No. No, it's not a scary movie. I don't think it's boring, but I can imagine people that were looking for attention suspense film feeling very bored with these attack scenes. When you're on the side of the killer, there's nothing to fear because you're on the side of the powerful person. If you're rooting for the victim, then you're on the side of the weak person and you have to fear the weak person being taken down by the strong person. Here, we're all for Corey, and the question is, is there suspense in that Corey is going to get caught? Corey isn't going to be able to open that door, and so we're afraid for Corey. (laughs) This is where I look to Allison. Allison needs to tell me what to feel. 
and I don't know why she's in it. Now, you guys have made the astute point that she never understood he confessed to murdering the homeless man. And he's not telling her about this stuff. And we never even find out if she knows that her doctor boss is dead. She'll go to work on Halloween and work. But I, I guess, the, you know, it doesn't bother her that they're not there. She doesn't put it together that their bodies are at Dr. Mathis's mansion. But what does she feel about this brutality? The subtext is, again, and I get it from the way that people talk to Lori and in the way that these two hook up is that there's something sexy about the bad boy. Even though she wants to be a survivor, or maybe it helps her with her survivor identity to be around a man that is so dangerous. And maybe it helps his confidence. You know, he's been picked on. He's been trying to be anonymous. He's been trying to hide his identity. And now he feels powerful. He feels able to take control of a situation and the situation he's going to take control of is that booty. It's interesting that Jason says they filmed a sex scene and then didn't include it. You feel like you need that. I feel like I need to see the seduction happen. I need to understand that what they're going through is the same thing as virginal babysitter Lori back in 1978, seeing a man watching her and feeling both intrigued and scared. We skipped over this earlier when Corey jumps out of the tube the first time. Arnie would talk about, we did this in, um, in the Rambo uh, retrospective, and he, when he comes out of the cave, it's a rebirth kind of uh, imagery, right? So we had that moment earlier with Corey that clearly, when he came out of that pipe the first time, he is forever changed, and he's going down this path, right? So at this point in the movie, um, when they're together... Right, we're up to the radio station part, and they set up that they're on the rooftop, and it's the rooftop is this quiet place, like in Spider-Man, when they go to the rooftop of the buildings. And so, there's a moment here where I thought I heard Allison, and I rewound it and used closed captions, and I was wrong. I thought she said to Corey, after they got chewed out by the DJ, let's do him, as in, let's kill him. And it wasn't. She said something else, which I'm blanking on at the moment, but... Let's do it. Let's leave town. Oh, let's do it. Leave town. That's it. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. For her, it means leaving Haddonfield together on his bike. The other thing is Allison talks in ways that Corey could interpret mm. as inciting to kill because she keeps talking about, let's burn this town down. And Corey says, I'll be the match. Allison has her own reasons for wanting to be anonymous in this town and not liking the attention she gets. And so the things she says a demented person could take as she wants me to do this killing. Yeah, I agree. If she wanted to leave town, she doesn't say, let's burn it down. That's not the description of someone running away. Burning it down means I'm going to join you and you taking out these awful, vile people. And in fact, as they are having this debate, it moves from the rooftop down to the sidewalk and the DJ, Willie the Kid, comes out. Did you notice when Corey fell from the roof and landed on his back, he sat straight up just like Michael Myers sat straight up in the original film? They're mimicking that body language. And will later on here. Yeah, I've noticed that, again, they try to give him the same affects and make you see those same moves. But yeah, Willie the Kid claims that the Laurie Strode story is Laurie, Jamie Lee Curtis, way back in the day, teased a dude with brain damage and made him snap. It's Laurie's fault for being a cock tease that Michael Myers went and killed everyone. 
That's the interpretation. So what you're describing, Arnie, I think is the way that many people are reading what has already happened. In town, not the audience, right? The In this town. Right, because that's stupid. <laughs> that isn't the case at all. That is a is way slanted in the depiction of what is essentially a victim trying to keep two kids alive on Halloween night as a mass murderer breaks in. Yeah, that is not a cock tease. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the problem with, yeah, what is this movie trying to get at? Is it getting at the false impressions of small town minds, which is a cliche at this point? Or was it really trying to talk about the way that victim and survivor is in need of keeping a victimizer around, which I think is kind of where they want to go, but they aren't smart enough to really dramatize in a believable way. They have to have all of this, yeah, coded language, sitcom kind of like, she said this, but she really meant this kind of stuff. I'm getting a little bit impatient with the film by this point, but I'm also still going with Corey's journey. I see this as, God help me, this movie's almost just Revenge of the Nerds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just the revenge, instead of hot sauce in the jock straps, is knife in the face. Right. And which is, again, would be interesting. We had this debate from the very first show. One of the reasons I liked Halloween more than Nightmare on Elm Street is because it does take that victimization standpoint. It doesn't ask sympathies for the killer. Now they're finally asking us to think of the humanity of of the serial killer, it's an interesting gambit that uh, I think you're right. It's worth pointing out, even though I do imagine, as Jason predicted, many people are going to hate Corey. I do feel like this actor is doing his best in a difficult, incredulous role to try and keep our sympathies with him as he... Yeah, reaches Halloween night, and now this is his shot at proving that he is the franchise future. Okay, so opens up with the October 31st. We see him on the floor of the abandoned house where the kid died with his head resting on the spot where the blood spatter was on the ground, right? And he wakes, and Lori is there waiting for him to confront him. She wakes him up thudding that chair. That, that's rude. <laughs> How rude of her. So, um... So here is what, if this scene is the only time we saw Lori change her mind on the boy, I would have been much better with her doing a change of heart on this kid, okay? Because of the earlier scenes of her trying to plead that this kid's not good for you, I would have liked that we see her following them but not hearing what she has to say. And then she wakes him up in this house and she, she confronts him, literally seeing that he has something wrong with him in this house with his head where it is there. That is enough for anybody to turn on this kid dating her granddaughter, right? So that would have been enough for me. The fact that she was already on to him earlier than that, that didn't play to me. But this scene with her confronting him could have been on its own. Just that would have made it much more sympathetic to me on her turn to him. Let's break this down. If she really believed he was Michael Myers part two, she should just be there with a gun and killing him. Exactly. She clearly doesn't think, she even says that, she doesn't think he's evil, he's just fucked up like she is. Mm -hmm. She recognizes the psychological damage is similar to her story and his, even though they were on different sides of the accusation. He's the psycho, she's the freak show is the way that, you know, she ends up surmising it. But it, he does get angry, and it looks like he grabs a poker or something and wants to go beat her, mm -hmm. and she just leaves through the window. Aggression like that should have had her calling the cops. I thought 
maybe she hadn't even been there because he turns back and she's gone. Mm. You say she went through the window. I'm like, was this all in his imagining? Because why would she go through a window? That makes no sense to me. The only thing is... She had a paper airplane in the scene, mm -hmm. and in a future scene, she's still holding that paper airplane. It's folded up, but she has that paper airplane. So I'm like, okay, she really was in that house. She really did confront him. But the way she exited gave me pause. And those paper airplanes were something that he was playing with the kid with in the 2019 babysitting mishap fall. And how Lori knows this and knows to bring a paper airplane with her, I don't know. Well, it might have been there, still left over. It could have been in the house. Yeah. Oh, true, true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. But from this point forward, it's morning, and he goes marching over to the pipe and, like, beats down Michael yeah. and pulls off his mask and says, I am now Michael. I'm wearing this. I'm doing this. Stuart, this scene is the apprentice is now the master, right? This is supposed to be that scene that the apprentice feels that he has the muff power now that he doesn't need his master anymore. You're just a man in a Halloween mask is what he says. Right. And the fact that Michael takes the beating and does not get up and kill him is not like Michael Myers at all. Yeah. But it certainly was for the themes of this movie, what this movie was trying to tell us, this scene was this man is now taking the final step to becoming what he feels is the new Michael Myers. I really needed a moment of Michael trying to pull rank and realizing his body was failing him. I needed to see, I mean, it's shot in really long shot and you barely see Michael. And again, we'll never see his face. We'll never see the actor. All of those choices I feel are incredibly harmful to what this movie is trying to dramatize. I really needed a moment where Michael realized he'd been beaten and the pain of that. I needed a sympathetic Michael Myers moment, I think. We don't see his full face, right? We see his head and his bald head and hair on the sides, whatever. I thought it might be played by John Carpenter, actually. <laughs> <laughs> right, he looks that way. That would be funny. That would have been really great. But he also seemed like he was damaged. Like, Michael seemed like he was already hurt when he was being attacked here because he's obviously old and feeble. Sure, body acting. Yeah. Yeah. So I get what they're trying to do. It just seemed weird for me for a Michael Myers to take that kind of beating and not get revenge at all on this kid. And so I'm Michael Myers. Who am I going to take out? Well, of course, he's going to lure Terry and the bullies into the junkyard. Arnie, you mentioned Christine. This was the only time I thought about Christine. Yeah, me too. But it is a heavy Christine moment. Yeah, I definitely was thinking it here. The name Cunningham and John Carpenter, I actually thought it earlier. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're on to something there. This actor even looks like the star of that movie. But here, when the four of them, the four bullies, go into the junkyard and there's that tow truck sitting there, I just expected the headlights to come on and hear that... <laughs> sound that they do in Christine because they're paying so much homage to John Carpenter. I wouldn't have been shocked if they did it, nor would I have dinged them for it. I just thought it would have been a cool moment, but they're going to wait a little bit before they start running people down with the truck. All right. So Brock, what you said earlier is this guy's different from Michael because he kills the people that hurt him. Right. And sure enough, Billy is the first one to get it. He was going to be the one driving the car, dragging the bike. He's impaled with something in his eye. Drumstick. He was like twirling a drumstick earlier. Oh, okay. And so he got the drumstick in the eye, which was nice and gory. I'm now enjoying these kills as far as just gore hound goes. Agreed. These four are incredibly satisfying. Stacy was always there with a comment. She didn't participate in the beating, but she was always egging it on. And so that she gets the wrench makes sense. The fact that Margot, 
who the whole time there was this girl that was like, why are you beating on him? Don't do that. The fact that she ends up under the fence and Corey wearing the Michael mask makes sure she's dead by stomping on her leads me to think that he is becoming more and more like Michael Myers and less selective in his targets. She wasn't 100% defensive of him. There were times when she got into it with them. So, you know, in revenge movie mode, she deserved it. Right. And also notice here, Stuart, this goes with my thesis on this also is he did not kill Ron, his uncle. The kid did with the rifle. Conveniently. Right. Corey wouldn't have killed Ron. We don't know that. Well, Ron has not been anything but nice to this guy. Exactly. Throughout the whole movie. He gave him a motorcycle. He said, I hope you find love one day. He was trying to be more parental than his own mother was in the scenes that we saw. And rather than let us see Corey's reaction to him when everyone else is down, whether he walks on by or kills him, they conveniently have it that Terry shoots him on accident and we can never know whether Corey would have killed him or not. Exactly. I think he might have. Okay, he may have, but he, we don't know that. But then it still goes along with my theory on what Corey is doing, that he is only killing people that are wronging him or treating him in that way. So, for example, theoretically, he could have gone and he didn't. He did not kill the parents of the little boy he killed after the mother shoot him out in the bar. She does not get killed by Corey during this rampage. Right. That's the only one that we see that does this, but you can understand why he wouldn't do that. What I'm saying, Brock, is I get your hypothesis, Yes, but it is untested in this movie. Fair enough. Because we only see him interacting with the people that hurt him, and Margot is my best case defense for the idea that maybe he would have killed anybody. Well, she was standing by the whole time, not physically stopping everybody. If she did say a word or two about, hey guys, that's enough, that wasn't enough to stop what they were doing, or she did not take a stand to defend him. Mm Mm-hmm. She would have been convicted of the crime, just like the other four, in a court of law, because she was there. Yeah. And, of course, we want to see the mom get it. Arnie, you mentioned earlier, Corey is starting to sit up like Michael and do things like Michael. This kill feels a lot like five-year-old Michael going to get the knife. Yes. They go with the POV shot of him getting the knife. You know, they don't put the mask eyes around it, but they're easily hearkening back to that. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. The DJ. You gotta do it, but boy, it just feels like a scene from another movie. Yeah, and the special effects on that were terrible. Oh, I loved that scene. I kind of liked him, yeah. I'm, I'm with Arnie. Like, they're obviously, you know, effect, like the idea that you could beat someone against turntables till their jaw breaks open, and then you get scissors and cut their tongue off and it skips the record. That's fun. I mean, that feels like a Freddy Krueger move. That feels like a different killer move. I thought it was funny. Of course, he's a mouthpiece, so you take out his tongue. All of that I get, but the tongue itself looks so fake to me that it was kind of kitschy in a movie that's not kitschy at all. Tonally, it's so wrong. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. But it's fun. And here's the thing. I'm having some release now. We had 90 minutes of buildup of Corey, and I came to like Corey, and I came to root for Corey to do this. And so now that Corey's doing this, even though the scenes do feel like they're out of a different movie, it's kind of like, thank you for finally giving me something of what this title usually promises to give me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for giving me some inventive kills in a Halloween film instead of just giving me Corey brooding. Yeah, they haven't elevated the horror so much that they can't get back into the dirt and be a good old-fashioned slasher with these kind of cheesy kills. But in other movies that we have watched, 
when it takes this long to get this kind of stuff, we've complained. And here, I'm not minding it. It took so long to get to this point because I was following along with Corey for the first part of this movie. So I'm right there with you. So, like, I just wanted to point out that, yes, we have made that critique before, but I'm not making that critique now. The critique I'm making is I think all of these deaths are stupid and they're happening too fast. I'm not into any of it. I hate this ending. Hate Halloween Day. Everything that happens on Halloween Day, I hate. I'm liking this stuff. There's stuff that pisses me off coming up, but I'm (laughs) enjoying this stuff. Yes, this final showdown. Oh my God, this showdown. Oof. Yeah, because after the DJ, Corey finally goes after Lori, and Lori and Allison have had a fight, and you wonder, is Lori going to kill herself? She has called in a suicide. She has nothing to live for because Allison has left. You really bought, like, this moment is so bizarre to me. I couldn't begin to understand it, that all of a sudden, her reaction to Allison running out on her with a boy she doesn't like is, I'm going to drink, finish my novel, and then blow my brains out? Why would she do that? Finish her memoir, not a novel, big difference, because it's her coming to, like, the whole point of the memoir is to get her stuff out and explain her side of the story and help her work through all this stuff. And the fact that she's going to then blow her head off, it made no sense to me whatsoever. And so I was like, this is terrible writing. And then all of a sudden, it's a fake out. Yeah. And I'm like, what? It's like, is, 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 what? Like, so it, the whole thing didn't play well at all to what we were watching. Uh-uh. Doesn't work at all. And can I just say, I love Lori, but I'd never buy that novel. Like, all that voiceover, all it's that writing, memoir. whatever she was writing in the memoir, every line is just, like, teeth-grindingly bad. Like, cliche and not something I'd want to read. Have you read memoirs, Stuart? Because they're full of that stuff sometimes. <laughs> I might have read it just because of her encounter with Michael and people who were interested in that. But here's the thing. I didn't think she was going to kill herself. And then they splat against the wall with a gunshot. And I go... Oh my God, they really did that? That is how you say goodbye to Jamie Lee Curtis after bringing her back for three movies as you ever blow her own brains out? The splatter on the wall got me. And then I'm like, wait a second, that's Pumpkin. Yeah, I didn't get me at all. I knew that was the pumpkin because they flashed the pumpkin by beforehand. So they didn't fool me. And she knows it's Corey and not Michael, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. She knows this is the poser, that he was coming for her. She doesn't think Michael is still around? Why wasn't she pissed off that the mask was on? Like, why didn't she have a reaction that he was wearing that mask? Yeah, I was the same way. I thought maybe she would have thought, hey, it's Corey, and then been like, huh? It's mm-hmm. wait. Yeah. yeah, who are you, Michael? Yeah, where was that moment? Where mm-hmm. was that moment of oh my god, Michael's back? Oh wait, it's just Corey because he's is he smaller. Maybe I don't, come on, he's wearing a jumpsuit. He has the mask, the actual mask on. Mm-hmm. That was a huge missed opportunity. See what you could have done here is she could have thought she killed Michael, pulled the mask off, and shit. Oh crap, it's Corey. It's not Michael. My killer's still out there and then had the finale. That would have been a little more satisfying to all of us, really, I think, because the way that this goes, the scene plays out, that she's almost framed for Corey's murder is also a step in the wrong direction from what the movie I was already watching. It would have been kind of really fun to have a fake out here if she thinking she finally got her closure and didn't. Yeah. That it was Corey and not Michael. I don't know how to write this because, again, all of this has built up to something that I didn't want. This is not the way that I wanted it to go down. Then the extra twist, 
that he realizes he can't have Allison, so he's going to frame Lori for his death by sticking the knife in his neck. Yeah, that didn't play for me either. So I already told you how I wanted this to play based on what movie I was watching or what I thought would be a stronger way to go. But what the movie just try to tell me is that he knows he's defeated. I, I would have been much more satisfying if he got killed instead of killing himself. Mm-hmm. It just makes him look more lame. You know, we already think Corey is a fake Michael Myers, and now he's just cemented that. Here's the thing is, if he's Michael Myers, he should be the shape. He should be unstoppable. Those two bullets shouldn't have stopped him, and he did do the sit-up thing again. But it's like, nothing should stop him. He should just keep coming. That's what the shape does, if this Mm -hmm. is the new shape. And instead... He did earlier say, if I can't have Allison, no one can. And the way he's going to do that, though, isn't by killing Allison, which is what that often means. Mm -hmm. It means he's going to kill himself and frame Lori for that murder. And so she'd be looked at the way Corey had been looked at his past three years. And that's supposed to be a parallel to the beginning of the movie where it was an accident. The kid died. Here it looks like she killed him, just like it looked like he killed the boy on purpose, right? So, or you could see the parents seeing it that way, right? So I would have preferred to have it look like she thought she killed Michael Myers and found out it was Corey. Mm -hmm. Not only that, but he really didn't think it through. He got off. He ought to know this is not going to stick. But, you know, maybe it's not the court of law that he's thinking about. It's the court of Allison's opinion. She walks in. She sees grandma holding the knife. Probably, no matter what the judge says, she's going to think grandma had a real hand in killing the boy I loved. Never realizing that he killed all those people, including the DJ, the way that he did. I I thought Corey might get away with it and the town would think Michael Myers did it. Yeah. I, do they not believe in security cam? Do they not have that in their <laughs> police budget that they can't have it? He's wearing the mask. Yeah, right. But Lori also, if you remember the first movie in this trilogy, her whole house was decked out with all sorts of paraphernalia, cameras and weapons and hidden rooms and things like that. And now she's living this more of an idyllic life, if you will, in this other house in Haddonfield, I would still think she would have a ring camera or something like that. (laughs) That, Some sort of camera in the house uh, somewhere because she's still going to be stalked by Michael at some point, she thinks, even though she's trying to move on from that. And if they didn't have this character have cameras in her own house, they should have said something about it instead of implying it. It's a real stretch. It's a real stretch that she healed herself that much and then ends up Proving her paranoid instincts are correct. Yeah, I'm not sure what it says about Lori, but that's not the point. Now we get the main event, the thing they've been building towards for three movies. Michael wheezes and, and limps his way into this final row. Who cares, right? If he's just an old man? This is where I'm with you, Stuart, where you said that you hated everything Halloween Day. This is not from this movie. This is... Somebody said, we're making a Halloween movie. We brought back Jamie Lee Curtis. We have to end with Michael, not Mm -hmm. Corey, Michael versus Laurie. But that's not what they've been building up to this entire Mm -mm. goddamn movie. It feels like I flipped a channel and I'm watching a different Halloween movie all of a sudden. I agree. It feels like a concession that they made to the studio because they realized audiences would go crazy like Halloween kills crazy and rip down the screen, cancel their Peacock subscription if they didn't get Michael in a climax. 
So I agree with you both that this kind of seems like a fan movie was made for like 10 minutes of like the, the conclusion of Halloween in this 10 minute sequence. But on the other hand, I did enjoy the sequence in that I didn't know who was going to win. You think Laurie's going to win, but then you'll think she's not going to win. And this movie has taken so many bold chances and so many bold statements on doing this movie, having it be so much about Corey and not Michael and all that stuff. I was thinking to myself, will they actually have Michael win this one? And then die next to her. Or, or both. Yeah, yeah. the thought would be you kill them both, right? Right. Or like, well, she had the last jump kill instead of him having the last scare and getting up and killing her in the last minute. You know, like uh, horror movie icons jump up at the last minute, you have to kill him a second time. That kind of thing. But she'll have that moment. That's where I was thinking because this movie was back and forth and back and forth with it. But again, the... They set up Michael is not as strong as he used to be, and she is in her 70s, right? So I think maybe she's in her 60s. My apologies to Miss Curtis if she's younger than that. But my point is that these two old people are fighting, regardless of how his whatever. It's still two old people fighting, and they're taking blows that most old people <laughs> probably couldn't take. When she headbutts him, he's trying to put her hand on the garbage disposal, and she throws her head back and, like, knocks him. I'm like, this is uh, self-parody. Like, this is a comedy now. This is silly. I wish he would choke her before she keeps narrating. Like, it's the what makes it so <laughs> awful is the way that she's like, I thought you were the boogeyman, but you're just a man that bleeds. I just, oh, stop talking. Stop it. Why is he a man that bleeds all of a sudden? This is not Michael Myers that we've seen. He always was. This is the conception. Yeah, I understand that's the conception, but it's a lie. It, there's no way to accept that watching 78, 2018 Halloween Kills. No. But that is what we are asked to believe is that a senior citizen could have done that. Bullshit. Bullshit. Total bullshit. <laughs> she says at one point to Michael, like, do it. Like, she wants to die. And that was a strange moment for me as well, because she's been fighting for life and trying to live. And so that's why that suicide fake out also didn't work for me. So that was strange that she would taunt him that way. Or was she talking to Allison who had just come back and goes and breaks his hand? I, You know, the, the way Allison did that to her mother in the last movie. It's right. It's so hard to say what's going on here. The fact that Michael gets defeated so easily, too. It's sad. It is. Yeah. No one's going to like that. No matter how much you like the pretensions of what Gordon Green is going for, no one is going to like seeing this old man skewered with kitchen knives and having his throat slip. And he slips his hand out from one time and tries to get her again, and then they have to stab her hand back down. And not only cuts his throat, but cuts his wrist, and he bleeds out, finally bleeds out. Which something in the last movie, when he got beat up by that mob, you would think he would have bled out there. But I don't remember a lot of blood on the ground, if any, when he was getting beat up by the mob at the end of the last movie. But here, he has a lot of blood in his body. It's all drained out. And then this, we gotta send it off in some way. They don't want to give him a tombstone. So we get this, strap him to the roof of the police car and drive him to the junkyard so that the car shredder can take him out. Now, Stuart, Arnie, <laughs> do you recommend? I'm not there yet. Um... Earlier in the movie, they show two shots of this metal shredder thing at the auto body junkyard place. I was convinced that when the four kids were at that junkyard, when they all got killed, like the Christine thing you referenced earlier, that one of them was going to go in that shredder thing. I had never thought that they would use the shredder at the end of the movie when they were implying that they were going to use it as, a, as an actual kill earlier in the movie. I was really surprised they brought it back when I thought they forgot about it. But I guess they purposely showed it to us twice so they could have this moment with his body. So a definitive end to Michael Myers. 
Yep. And Sandra is there and Julian is there. Remember the little kid that was being babysat that we, he, we love, he's like little Arnold Drummond. He had such opinions. <laughs> and the whole town followed the procession like a parade there. So everyone witnessed the destruction. Like a parade. I'm actually feeling bad for Michael because this is reminding me of like yes. the stuff done to Mussolini and things like that. Yeah. And it's absolutely inhumane when you think of it being done to actual humans. I mean, wasn't it Mussolini who they hung in a, and allowed every citizen who wanted to to come and beat the corpse for a while? I mean... Yeah, they kicked him down the street. And again, we can take that stance of outside of this saying that's so horrible. But if you lived in Haddonfield, <laughs> you went through that, yeah. your relatives met the wrong end of Michael's knife, I'd probably be there as well. And then to put him in the automotive masher, they did set it up earlier. We got to see metal being chunked out of that thing. And I thought <laughs> briefly that Lori was going to die with him because she jumps in the metal masher yeah. and they don't show us the ground. And I didn't realize there was like a flatbed to that. I thought it was like a wood chipper where the whole thing is the masher. And so I'm like, why is she standing there? Is she like so linked to Michael that she can't survive without Michael? But no, she's just there to push the body into the teeth and let him get all chopped up. And I mean, you think that this is it, but we've seen Lori behead Michael Myers at the end of H2O only to find out she beheaded an EMT last time. So mm -hmm. She was the one that got killed in 8. Yep. I agree. We've been here before. It doesn't feel particularly powerful to see her do this because of this, the way that horror movies work. Eh, he'll come back in some way. And even she says that. In the end, she ends up writing that evil doesn't die, it changes shape. So it's such as true of Halloween. Michael Myers will find a way. You know, this will be undone. Everything that you've done in this supposedly seminal moment of putting it to rest, eh, it just means you get to have a, a final scene with Frank. Well, that's the thing we're talking about at the end of No Time to Die also, right? Is that in this particular trilogy, this story has concluded, but the next time he comes around, it's a whole new ball of wax, right? It's a whole new continuity. This particular trilogy has ended with, well, I think it's quadrilogy, right? Because they're counting the first Halloween. It's a continuity for it, right? The ones that are in this continuity are four. Right. That story has ended, so the next Halloween will be a different continuity. I'm just saying that they could put a fifth one in this continuity. Yeah, Where Michael could. Myers is is standing on the corner watching them put the wrong body in the chipper. <laughs> Just the same. That's exactly what they did with Halloween 8. That is the exact excuse they give. Or Friday 9, he jumps into a new body. The shape possesses somebody else. It'll be a girl this time, right? <laughs> Michelle. Michelle Myers. Michelle Myers. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Halloween Ends? Stuart. You know, this is definitely one of those sequels that some people are going to walk away super hating on. Burning passion, die, die, die. I call it the Alien 3 effect because they intentionally deny the pleasures of the franchise to the fan. They don't want you to have the same experience you're accustomed to. You know, Michael is portrayed as this doddering chump in a pipe who's giving away his gifts to some lame wannabe who's more wimp than psycho. And more to the point, the fact that so much time is given to dramatic beats, not gore and suspense beats, gonna piss people off. I get it. My sadness is not that David Gordon Green has gone down that path. 
I actually think that's pretty cool. I actually think it's brave and elevated, and this series really needed some creativity. By a part 13, you need to make some big moves, because we've seen the old dance too often. Unfortunately, my sadness is he didn't stick the landing. This script was not ready. The elements are in play. I do feel like they were onto something, but the writers lost focus. And whereas Halloween Kills bravely announced the trilogy was not going to be about Laurie, it was going to be about Michael, I don't know what this one is about. Is it about Michael? I feel like he's barely in this thing. And can we say that Corey's story is his story? I don't see enough connective tissue. I don't feel like his descent into murder is the same thing and answers the questions that were building up to in the first two David Gordon Green movies. And most embarrassingly, I feel like poor Jamie Lee Curtis and her granddaughter really kind of are left looking stupid, really don't have much motivation in this movie. We're expected to believe there's a sexual charge to danger or something, bad boy love interest, but all of that feels like they don't go there, they don't dramatize that because that would that would look really bad. They wouldn't be able to pull that off. So the stars of the movie end up kind of fading into the background. And what begins as a fairly compelling drama about a town in grief at the 45-minute mark kind of topples into some lame kitchen climax with yeah old people headbutting each other and dropping fridges on their legs. And <laughs> it just, yeah, it makes me sad because I feel like I was more or less with this film, but that ending... No, Michael is dead for me in this conception, and they don't show his face. I think it's telling that they do not know the face of evil. They keep that old man's face off camera, and what they've shown us is the face of self-parody. This thing has become a shadow of its former self. So that's a red arrow? That's a red arrow. Arnie. Well, I'm very glad that I didn't have to have the argument that I expected coming in here where Stuart would be like, but <laughs> this shows Michael's origin. <laughs> it doesn't. I, I would love to have been able to make that claim. How could I? How could anyone? I just was like, it sort of tries to do that, but it doesn't match up because of the differences, as you mentioned. But here's the thing. This is a really bad Halloween movie. If you come to this looking for a Halloween movie, you might as well turn on Season of the Witch. I mean, it's just not what a Halloween movie should be, whatever it is on its own merits. And my wife walked out so pissed off at the end of this. She wasn't like she didn't like the movie. She was actively pissed by the movie mm -hmm. because it promises one thing with the title Halloween and it delivers something so totally different. Not my problem, but I get it. Mm -hmm. So it's a not recommend as a Halloween movie. But here's the thing. As Corey, the picked-on kid movie who decides to go Revenge of the Nerds, and basically as a remake of Christine, I got into this film. I liked Corey. I empathized with Corey, much like I did Arnie in Christine. I liked this actor. I liked his romance with Allison, even though I didn't understand Allison's side of it. She became more of a prop than a character. I liked seeing him go psycho. I liked it a lot in that scene in the junkyard where he's killing those four teenage bullies. 
I enjoyed the killing the doctor scene, though I understand the lack of motivation to it. If they just came out with this movie as its own type of horror film, I think people would be more prepared for what it's going to offer. I'm actually glad I was spoiled that Corey was going to be some kind of killer, because if I hadn't known, I think I'd have had Marjorie's reaction, and I didn't have time to watch this twice. I think if I'd watched this twice, I'd then have the reaction I had, which is, it's not a bad Corey movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> as a Corey movie, I'm going to give it a mild recommend. Wow. As a Halloween movie, not. But I would watch this one again as a standalone thriller on Halloween. I mean, I just enjoyed that Christine-ish story that much. So, it's a weaker Green Arrow, as it has been for this entire David Gordon Green trilogy, and this really doesn't feel like a part of it. It's a shitty capper to a trilogy, but it's an okay film. Mild recommend. The words I wrote down at the end of this movie was License to Kill. 1989 James Bond movie. If you remember what I said on that, it is a good action movie, but not a great James Bond movie. This is a good movie for me, for a guy who kills people kind of thing, but not a good Halloween movie. So that is exactly where I am with this movie. And I really liked the journey of Corey. I didn't like how his story ended. And I totally feel the ending with Laurie Strode and Michael Myers. I know what they were going for, but the movie preceding it, that does not gel. It feels like a completely different movie. I liked how much this movie did not go where I thought it was going to go. I completely get the Last Jedi vibe off of this, too, is that it's going to be polarizing for people who who want something different in their movies. But I liked The Last Jedi and where it went and how it took the characters that I like. I don't necessarily like what they did with Lori here, though. So as a Halloween movie, it's very weak. But I'm glad she comes out on top at the end against Michael. For the most part, I liked this movie, so I'm giving it a green arrow. What? I am. I like this Corey story a lot. I also like the fact that they realized they could not tell another Michael Myers story and they decided to go a different way with it. I'm not 100% loving how they tie it into Michael Myers. Mm -mm. Um, I really wish they could find another way to get Michael in here and conclude the story. But there's no way in heck you're going to make me ever convinced that they had a trilogy in mind and this should have been one movie instead of two. The last movie... You could have summed up the last movie in the first 10 minutes of this movie to have them go into the stories that were here. Having a whole other movie in between this one, I think, hurts it. We were talking about this last time, how this last movie will tie into the other one and make it... And you, Stuart, had said the second movie makes the first movie better and all that kind of stuff. I think having a middle movie not needed you would i mean obviously the have to figure out a way to get rid of the daughter and her husband differently right but if you had Lori moving on four years later and not had that second chapter told about the night after or the night continue with michael i think this would have been a stronger movie a duology would have been much stronger to actually jump right to Corey instead of having that whole town thing and going into that whole deep dive of the town which really does not pay off here in a way that warrants an entire movie but it does set up michael for being in a shell of himself because he got beaten up so badly in that return to killing people 40 years later yeah i agree i thought halloween kills was building up to something and this is not that movie you could skip halloween kills and go from 2018 in fact it probably would play better 
much better. And I think just like The Last Jedi was building towards something they completely abandoned for Rise of Skywalker because of fan reaction, if this was the second movie of the trilogy, they wouldn't have they, they would have probably had the same backlash that but thankfully they did it for the third one and they're just going to bring Michael back to a regular Michael Myers movie theoretically the next time they bring him back versus having this kind of three movie talking about closure and things like trying to go for something deeper and more thought provoking and bravo for the filmmakers for taking these chances in a Halloween movie. I think that's the strongest thing about it is they took chances, which is why I like The Last Jedi too, is that they take chances that is storytelling chances trying to tell a story you don't do that usually in a slasher movie or a horror movie and here they did i wasn't satisfied a lot with it and i would have rewritten quite a few parts but you guys are recommending it which i think is interesting i am i absolutely am i think it's satisfying i liked elements of the Corey story but i think we can all agree michael myers will be back and Corey's story has ended we will never see Corey again i can't imagine how this franchise goes on is it that they let it sit for five years and then just totally remake it new characters i don't know i don't want them to that's my guess my guess is exactly five years because that seems to just be the magical period of time that you let something rest before you reboot and that in 2027 the three of us will be here talking about a new incarnation of halloween and yeah it'll probably be a reboot yeah it will be a reboot for sure and i hope they don't do it I really hope they don't do it, but we all know that the almighty dollar is what it is, and we're going to see another Halloween movie. And you liked it. So, I mean, the the thing that's interesting, Brock, is you're always like, I can't believe they made another one. You recommended that last Texas Chainsaw movie. Like, you end up surprising yourself. They can convince you, but it always seems like a bad idea to go back to the well. It does. I would like something original now and then. Come on. I'm kind of done with Michael Myers. I can honestly say that. Without Jamie Lee Curtis in its future, I'd be fine with this franchise going away. But it won't. No. (laughs) No, It won't. It won't. So now we've concluded this trilogy, and last time you said the Halloween Kills was your favorite Halloween movie, Stuart. I'm not sure if that still stands there, but this one is towards your lower end, right? This one I recommended. I recommended not all of the Halloween movies, obviously. Can't be lower end. I mean, let's remember... That there's the curse of Michael Myers <laughs> and <laughs> resurrection. I mean, yeah, so it might Hall- be square in the middle there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is obviously you may not want what it's peddling, but it's obviously much better made than some of those middle Halloween movies from the '90s for sure. And I would rewatch this one before I would watch Rob Zombie's first one, which I did also recommend. So that's where I'm pretty much where my rankings are with that. Is that it goes before the Rob Zombie one of other ones I recommended. But that's it for us on Halloween. Next week, we're going to be back with another new movie review. I feel like Rocky and Bullwinkle. And now for something completely different, Black Adam. You're going to have to educate me. People keep saying it's related to Shazam. I don't remember anything like that in Shazam. I remember that cartoon dog movie from this summer. (laughs) And it ended with this angry Superman This goth Superman, which I already thought Henry Cavill was plenty goth, but this one's even angrier. It's The Rock. I don't even know what the plot is. He's knocking down jets and bragging about the fact that he's a bad guy, but he's kind of the good guy. It's an origin story. So there's the plot of every first superhero 
movie. Mm. It's got Pierce Brosnan in it, speaking of James Bond. So I don't know what it is either. I'm going to be looking to Jacob a lot to explain Black Adam. In the meantime, we're finally getting back to the Adams family as well. This Friday, we're seeing the latest incarnation, the animated movies, that 2019 hit, The Adams Family. You, Brock, and I are covering that for donors. And just to let listeners know of a schedule change, then we're going to be back on Halloween. Our show that week is coming out one day early since Halloween is on a Monday. And we are, at Stuart's shocking suggestion, reviewing the Marvel (laughs) special Werewolf by Night. So we're doing Black Adam next week, Werewolf by Night the week after on Halloween. Right. We'll see you on Monday for Halloween. Boop, 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 Werewolf by night, Halloween, Halloween, Halloween. Werewolf by night, Halloween. Listen to now playing. <laughs> we'll see you all next Halloween, whenever that's going to be, folks. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friends. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to the other installments as well as hundreds of other horror movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Find reviews of Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Star Trek, Leprechaun, The Avengers, and more. Now Playing Podcast is a production of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Venganza Media is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music used in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed, and the Now Playing trademark may not be used without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Isn't Children of the Corn too? No, it didn't make it to thirteen. Not yet. There, yeah, we got an eleventh one sitting on a shelf somewhere. <laughs> I, I, every day I pray to God it doesn't come out. <laughs> to whatever's in the row, I just praying. Like, why is he kneeling in the corn stalks? <laughs> Believe me, I got my reasons. <laughs> there is this idea that she doesn't have to be here. In central Illinois. God, I think that a lot myself. (laughs) But but I I appreciate the fact that she just isn't ready to move.